Before this episode begins, I'd just like to say, wow, they caught the East Area Rapist. So much information was known about the killer, except his name. But now we know that. Joseph D'Angelo. A 72-year-old former police officer who lived in the community he once terrorised. The shockwave of excitement that has passed through the true crime community these last few days has been matched only by the seeming indifference of the rest of the population of planet Earth. It's comparable to the arrest of the Yorkshire Ripper. As the story unfolds, we all discover more about this hideous little man and his penchant for evil, but for now it is enough to know that he is a 100% match to the DNA recovered from the crime scenes. The mystery of the EAR, latterly known as the Golden State Killer, has been solved. This is magnificent news. Let us hope that more cold cases are solved in the same way. Congratulations to all involved in apprehending this notorious and vile man. Still at large. Unsolved British murders. Hello and welcome to this podcast series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will take a look at an individual murder or series of killings that, despite the efforts of the various constabularies involved, have, for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. Due to the nature of the topics covered, this programme is not suitable for children or people who are easily offended or of a fragile disposition. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Series 2, Episode 7 Dr Michael Meenahan, December 1994 1994 was a dramatic year in many ways. The Conservative government of John Major was limping from one scandal involving sleaze, a rather ridiculous euphemism for corruption, within its ranks to another. In the February of 1994, police began the excavation of 25 Cromwell Street, the Gloucester home of builder Fred West and his wife Rosemary. This vile and depraved pair were the product of their dysfunctional childhoods. But as I have said previously, many people are subjected to neglectful, violent, psychologically or sexually abusive childhoods and overcome these wrongs and injustices to become reasonably balanced and rounded individuals who stop the cycle of abuse. Fred and Rose took pleasure, it seems, in building on the trauma they suffered in their childhood homes and built upon them to become a married serial murderer couple who killed regularly including their own children, following horrific and sustained sexual torture for their own gratification. 
1994 also witnessed the passing of the legendary Formula One racer Ayrton Senna on lap six of the San Marino Grand Prix, when he lost control of his car as he entered the Tamburello corner at 190 miles an hour and hit a wall. Tony Blair became the leader of the Labour Party. The provisional IRA declared a ceasefire. Trading was allowed on a Sunday for the first time, and in a rather unremarkable working-class housing estate on the outskirts of Oxford, a 33-year-old biochemist with a postdoctoral research role at the Sir William Dunn School of Pathology was murdered with a shotgun blast through the window of his kitchen at around half past four on Saturday, 10th of December. Dr. Meenham was a physically imposing figure who stood six feet three inches tall, wore his almost black hair in a loose tangle of natural curls or a ponytail, and was handsome in the square-jawed way of an intelligent man with sporting interests and a pleasant personality that attracted people both platonically and intimately. Many have spoken of him being a big softy and a gentle giant. His murder remains stubbornly unsolved and completely baffling. Michael Meenan was born at Stirling Royal Infirmary on December the 4th, 1961. He spent his childhood growing up in Bannockburn, Scotland, and he started his academic life at St Mary's Primary School, before moving up to St Morden's High in Stirling. After leaving secondary school, Michael went to Stirling University, where he read biochemistry and graduated with a BSc Honours. He then went on to obtain an MSc. Michael Meenan was a very bright chap, so it was only logical that he would become a PhD candidate. To complete his doctoral studies, he moved to Bristol and joined Southmead Hospital for the period of his training. Once he had been awarded his bonnet, the soft velvet hat that generally distinguishes PhDs from other graduates, Dr. Michael Meenan took a position with Oxford University at the Sir William Dunn School of Pathology. A centre of academic research into the cellular and molecular biology of pathogens, the immune response, cancer and cardiovascular disease, it has played a major role in the development of many novel treatments and has been instrumental in the development of the pathological sciences around the world. The prestige of working for one of the leading universities was, unfortunately, not matched with the remuneration Dr. Meenahan received and it is speculated that this was the reason he chose to live on the Blackbird Lees estate. Blackbird Lees, spelled L-E-Y-S, means an area of land put to pasture, generally for grazing cattle, and given the whole ancient connection to cattle husbandry, including the name of the city itself, which is a literal adaptation of Ox Ford, a river crossing that allows for the early farmers to move their cattle across the River Thames, or the Isis, as it is known in Oxford City. The housing development in Blackbird Lees began in earnest in the 1950s, when the council sought to rehouse the rundown urban centre dwellers in a more appropriate location. The majority of the housing was, initially, social housing that catered for the poorer members of Oxford's community and the thousands of workers from the Morris plant at Cowley. Sadly, there were a few problems with crime on the estate. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, Blackbird Lees was almost synonymous with high crime. The joyriding craze, which saw adolescents stealing cars and performing high-speed reckless driving on public roads, was a source of great trouble for Thames Valley Police, and matters came to a head in 1991, when they moved to end all of the trouble there. 
The resultant riots, which saw youths pelting the police with rocks and any other loose bits of material they could put their hands on, was headline news. By 1994, a sizeable proportion of the estate had been sold under the right to buy scheme for social housing tenants and housing associations. This scheme had been introduced in 1980 by Conservative Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Although the scheme drew, and still draws, criticism for the reduction in the number of social houses available, the gradual privatisation of the Blackbird Lees estate had led to a growing sense of community pride and a reduction in overall crime levels. But problems still persisted. There are good and bad people everywhere. Police were still regularly receiving emergency calls from Blackbird Lees, and on December the 10th, at 4.25pm, the emergency operator took a call from Dr Meenahan, although due to his injuries, Michael was unable to speak. The call was traced and police sent to investigate. On arriving at his house, police were unable to raise a response, so began looking around the property. When they entered the back garden, they discovered the kitchen window had been broken, and on looking in, they could see Michael laying on the floor of his kitchen. They immediately forced an entry, and found that in the minutes since he first dialed 999, Dr Michael Meenahan had died. Due to the nature of his injuries, and the damage to the house, Suicide was very rapidly ruled out, and an investigation into his homicide began. Michael had been shot once, with a shotgun, from between 6 and 12 feet, or 1.8 to 3.7 metres, as evidenced by the spread of shot and injury sustained. It is theorised that Michael did not suffer for long before succumbing to his wounds and blood loss. As the murder squad swung into action, everyone in Michael's life became a subject of investigation and theories of the crime began to form. Those intimately involved with Michael came under the spotlight first and being a good-looking, athletic and highly educated man, there were quite a few people on that list. That isn't to say that Dr Meenhan was a philanderer, but he did enjoy the close, affectionate and intimate relationships an eligible academic would be able to attract. Prior to taking up his PhD candidacy in Bristol, Michael Meenahan had separated from his wife of four years. The pair had married in 1982, and the result was a son, also named Michael. But following the divorce, father and son lost touch for a while, but prior to his untimely murder, the two had been spending weekends in Oxford, and Michael was proving to be a devoted father once more. Relationships break down, it's a sad fact of life but at least the bond between parent and child had been on the mend. Dr Meenahan's love life was to produce more connections too. Shortly after separating from his wife, Michael became involved with another woman, Jenny. The relationship between the two seems to be a bit of a curate's egg. There was plenty of warmth and love between the two, but there was also the lurking presence of jealousy from Jenny. This jealousy has been described as intense and their relationship is said to have become stormy as it progressed. Jealousy is a horrible emotion, both for the person who is jealous and the object of it. I've had relationships where my partner is jealous, and it's utterly exhausting. With jealousy comes a level of permanent suspicion and cross-examinations on every contact with someone of the opposite gender, and that becomes part of everyday life. Communications are monitored, accusations become a regular part of the interplay of the intimate relationship. It weakens trust, destabilises the union and is an abusive situation. 
Many people suffer with the invasion of privacy of their phones being examined, their computers being searched, and threats of leaving, or violence, or actual violence. Physical attacks can become the norm. Somehow we just accept that jealousy is a normal emotion despite the toxicity of it. It is often defended with the most mindless of phrases. It is often defended with the most mindless of phrases. No smoke without fire. In the case of Jenny and Michael, it led to the explosive breakdown of the relationship and the police were called to the home following a violent and long argument. They separated for a while and there was an attempt at reconciliation, but that failed. During this relationship, Michael had taken up his sporting passion of volleyball again. Michael had been an excellent player and had played competitively at league level. In 1993, Michael was part of the team and associated entourage that attended a volleyball tournament in Surrey. The women's team was a player short, so a call was put out over the tannoy for a player and one came forward. She was a 34-year-old mother with three young children, Denise Holt. Like Michael, she had obtained a PhD and the two hit it off almost instantly. Before long, they were exchanging long letters and Michael regularly sent her flowers. The sweet flourishes of romance, the growing closer and beginning to plan for the future was given a rather bumpy fanfare when Jenny, with whom Michael was still involved, found a receipt for some of the flowers he was sending. The resultant argument brought the entanglement with Jenny to a final and complete end. Michael and Denise were now able to begin planning their future together properly. The time they spent together was happy and Michael soon developed a close bond with her children and the two of them began to discuss living together. Denise lived in Birmingham, some two to three hours north of Oxford, but it's a reasonably straightforward journey and their plan seems to have involved Michael commuting to Oxford from Birmingham on a fairly regular basis. All it seemed was beginning to look rosy. The start of their new life was planned for January 1995. Reports of what happened in the weeks leading to the seemingly inexplicable shooting of a scientist make for confusing reading. A key piece of information given in many reports is that Michael had recently changed his telephone number and Gomex directory. Apparently, he had received a number of silent telephone calls in the months leading to his decision. It's understood that he had mentioned that he was concerned that it was burglars checking to see if anyone was home and he felt uncomfortable with that following a burglary the previous year. It's a perfectly logical explanation and an understandable choice in the situation. Today we're all inundated with silent calls from automated dialers or dodgy outfits telling us that we qualify for PPI repayment or informing us that we've been in a car accident in the last two years and we're due for a payment of many thousands of pounds. How wonderfully innocent it seems to have a number changed for legitimate distress caused by silent calls. There is another set of statements that seem to perfectly contradict each other which focus on Michael's personal life inside of his house in the weeks leading up to his death. The contemporary reports indicate that Michael had taken to locking his doors when in the house and this was seen as something to be concerned about. But in an area with an elevated crime risk, a history of having been burgled, and leading a private life inside of his home, locking the doors whilst being at home is almost an irrelevance. It's pretty much to be expected. I've lived in various British cities, towns and villages, 
with their varying rates of crime and have always locked doors when home. Is that because I am paranoid about being broken into or similarly disturbed? No, it's just common sense security measures against passing opportunists and unannounced visits from relatives. The final element in the triumvirate of conflicting statements is in regard to the windows in the house. Michael had hung sheets and blankets to cover the windows. This, whilst not being the standard form of interior decoration for most people, is not a definite sign that Michael was hiding or withdrawing from the world. His friends have been quite dismissive of this feature, stating that Michael was not a big DIY fan and had never put up curtain rails. It's not impossible. I've known many academically gifted and highly qualified people exhibit similar behaviour because curtains were a waste of time and interior decoration isn't as important as some would have you believe it is. It is possible that someone had been spending time viewing the activity inside the house, although there is no evidence to support that, beyond Michael putting up blankets up in the preceding weeks. Remember this is December, so the light would have been failing by the middle of the afternoon, and by early evening it would have been pitch black. If we stop to consider that the blankets and sheets were not an expression of growing mental illness, as there is nothing beyond the statements of neighbours to support it, Blocking out the windows so that the interior lights didn't broadcast everything that was happening inside to the world was an act of a man who didn't like DIY and wanted the easiest and somewhat lowest effort solution to the problem. In the immediate hours prior to his murder, Michael had been seen using a woodwork plane on a door in the garden. This was unusual behaviour for a man with a known aversion to the domestic maintenance arts, but again, understandable if we just take a step back and consider that he was in a new relationship that was going well and he had plans to spend the majority of his time in Birmingham. So a fix on a sticky door, although somewhat out of the ordinary for Michael, isn't some staggering revelation. At a little after 4pm, Michael was observed tidying away the tools and door before going inside. What followed is a mystery. When police broke down the door to gain access, none of the lights were on, despite it being late afternoon in the depths of winter. It was dark outside, and yet Michael had been in the house for a few minutes without turning any lights on. In his final moments, Michael entered the kitchen at the back of the house and was hit with a shotgun blast through the window. Blackbird Lees is a relatively densely populated conurbation with a fair proportion of people at home due to shift patterns in the factories, the day of the week and the time of the day. But the witness reports are breathtakingly sparse about the shotgun being fired. A neighbour reported that it sounded similar to a champagne bottle being opened. Others believed it to be a firework being let off. Youths love the letting off fireworks in urban areas at inappropriate and inconsequential times of the day and night. So the idea that the noise of a shotgun being fired in a built-up area being mistaken for fireworks is wholly believable. Others believed they had heard a car backfiring, which is again an acceptable explanation. In the weeks and months that followed, 800 people were interviewed. Everyone associated with Michael went under the microscope. All were found to have solid alibis none of whom would have had a decent enough motive to kill him in such an extreme and public manner. 
The gunman stood in his back garden that he either accessed from the path that ran down the side of the house from the street or from over the fence at the back of the property and beyond which is an allotment. These are also the presumed routes used by the killer to escape. The escape option of the street has the killer simply walking away from the property, carrying a shotgun, down the path, along the road and into obscurity. Considering the scant regard given to the firing of a shotgun in an urban environment, it is entirely possible that the killer walked to a vehicle a little way down the road and simply drove off. If driven sensibly, the car would have vanished into the ebb and flow of the normal early evening traffic of Blackbird Lees. It's a similar story on the other side of the allotments. For those outside of the UK, an allotment is a communal garden space often operated by the local council to facilitate the growing of vegetables. The area is split into smaller subsections that allow for the hobby scale production of vegetables. They're quite iconic in their own way. However, the allotment plot was accessible from several sides, and once a little way away from the scene, the killer could have vanished easily. Immediately between the back of Michael's garden and the allotments is a small scrubby copse, which could have provided more than enough cover for the perpetrator to make their escape. Little more is known. Because a shotgun was used, there's no barreling on the projectiles. It's also made it impossible for the police to deduce if the gun was single-barreled or double-barreled. All other permutations of shotgun design are also unknown. So we are left with questions. Why Michael? Why a shotgun? Why through a window? There is some belief that Michael's murder has all the hallmarks of being a contract killing. But it also has all the hallmarks of a scorned lover exacting revenge. And all the hallmarks of mistaken identity. And all the hallmarks of a meaningless waste of a promising life for no particular reason. Only the latter is for sure. With such little evidence and no perceptible motive, what theories of the case are there? The obvious and first port of call is the romantic revenge angle. Was Michael killed by a jilted ex-lover? Was the jealousy that Jenny harboured enough to make her seek the use of a contract killer? This was one avenue that the police explored in depth, but Jenny was in the clear. It's possible Michael could have been involved with someone who was already in a relationship and that their partner became enraged and killed the handsome young biochemist. It's a classic storyline from numerous works of crime fiction that obfuscate the work of the police and detectives so well, and it's utterly unfounded. Michael was planning a future with Denise, and the two were deeply committed to each other. The next theory that got some considerable investigation was that Michael was killed by a gang who didn't understand the difference between a biochemist who lectures at Oxford University and the scientists at the forensic laboratories who sequence DNA for profiling and identification. Michael's research was into the field of cell adhesion and the mechanisms behind it, and absolutely nothing to do with forensic investigation using DNA. Criminals are not the sharpest tools in the box, and sometimes a vague notion of the scientist who works in a complex field that sounds like it might be something else can cause the harder thinking to victimise useful members of society. One such case, and sadly there are others, is that of Dr Yvette Collette. Dr Collette lived in South Wales and was subjected to her house being daubed with the word pedo, 
which implies that Dr. Kalek was a paedophile. This caused the good doctor a great deal of distress and terror and forced her to find a new home. The reason for this graffiti attack and subsequent terror is because of her job. Dr. Yvette Kalek is a paediatrician. Moronic vigilantism is all too popular with the impassioned yet undereducated. This is due to a combination of factors. The mainstream tabloid press creating the spectre of paedophiles lurking around every corner and seemingly reluctant activity from the police to arrest anyone suspected of this most vile of crimes without any firm proof. Pesky due process. What makes the situation even worse is that the recent revelations about the organised exploitation of young women and girls from the lower end of the socio-economic background, coupled with an institutionalised disregard for the girls and dismissal of their reports, blaming the victims for the abuse for making poor life choices and not wanting to be seen to be racist against men of a certain ethnic demographic known to be carrying out the highly organised trafficking and rape of these girls, has been a deep shock and the scale of the exploitation is staggering. The fact that people made active decisions to not prosecute and not investigate because they were worried about being accused of being racist, whilst overlooking the fact they've become enablers to paedophile gangs, is deeply insulting to everyone. What's worse is that none of them will be legally punished for their part in the damage done to these young women. The criminal gang theory has some variations too. Aside from the illiteracy of the suspect who didn't understand Michael's work, there is another theory of the case that states that Michael might have been targeted because of some link to one of the drug gangs on the estate. But this would certainly be a viable theory if the evidence supported it. But Michael wasn't known to take drugs or drink heavily, so that aspect of the theory falls somewhat short. Another aspect for consideration is that it was a gang hit on a rival gang member by someone from outside of the area who went to the wrong address, and that Michael's murder was mistaken identity, which is the most likely explanation. Someone not familiar with the estate might have made a simple error, but then it requires there to be another set of coincidental circumstances to fit perfectly with the known series of events. Michael was seen working outside on the day of his death. It would have been much easier for a criminal in a stolen car to shoot him from the road and make a hasty retreat from there, rather than go down the side alley, into the back garden and possibly break the window, or knock on the window to get Michael to go to the kitchen, and then shooting him once with a shotgun. All very plausible, but it raises the question of why Michael had left the lights off. If, as some quarters of the press would have you believe, Michael had begun to act nervously because of the curtain situation and the change of telephone numbers, and the most damning of all the locking of the doors while you're in the house, in a high crime area following a break in some time before, then the late afternoon December light would have produced a crepuscular atmosphere within the house that would have been, due to the curtain situation, almost as dark as night. It's possible that Michael was merely enjoying the twilight feel to the house, and when I have been single I've been known not to put lights on until absolutely necessary. Does it mean I was paranoid about someone outside? No, it means I hadn't switched the lights on. The darkness inside and out would have worked to the advantage of the killer. Their eyes would have adjusted to the gloom and streetlights, so that the figure of Michael moving around in a darkened room in a darkened house in the darkening afternoon of December 
would have been visible but not fully identifiable. And therefore, the mistaken identity theory actually holds some water. Another interesting theory is that it was a gang member carrying out an attack on an innocent man to get his gang stripes. It's possible, maybe. In the absence of every other possible motive and reason, it could be the reason, but I'm not convinced. The weapon itself would be an unusual choice. But in a city surrounded by rural communities that have a lot of shotguns used by gamekeepers and farmers for legitimate reasons, obtaining a shotgun may have been easier than we'd like to give credit for. Village boys and adolescents are sometimes a bit stupid and reckless with the firearms they can have access to. There are numerous examples of rural road signs that have been hit with a shotgun blast, most likely fired from the back of a Land Rover or similar vehicle. This was certainly a pastime amongst the young farmers and young gamekeepers I knew growing up in rural Hampshire. It was a noisy and exciting way of passing the time between childhood and adulthood, when boys were too young to drink and they were known to the local publicans and shopkeepers. Similarly, lending guns to friends to deal with vermin wasn't unknown. I'm not sure of the situation now, as I don't mix in those circles anymore, but certainly lending guns was known. Did someone in the Oxford area borrow a gun to kill rats or other vermin, to then turn it on a brilliant young scientist for a seemingly unfathomable motive, then return it the next day as if nothing happened? How many of the owners of shotguns did Thames Valley Police trace in the weeks and months following the murder? Did they offer an amnesty on information about lending a weapon for an innocent reason? These matters are unknown. If you have any information about this senseless murder of a likeable Scottish scientist in his own home, please call 101 and ask to be put through to the cold case review team at Thames Valley Police. Let's put this killer behind bars. It's likely that allegiances and loyalties have changed in the intervening years, and a friendship that was once staunch is now a faded memory. Maybe the £20,000 reward will inspire the person with some knowledge or suspicion about the killer to come forward. The motive behind Michael's murder is still unknown. And his killer is still at large. Still at Large is an independent true crime podcast. It is written, presented and edited by me, Desmond J. Brambley. If you would like to help support the show, please visit our Patreon page by visiting patreon.com slash stillatlargepodcast. You can join in with the conversations about the show on our Facebook discussion group by visiting Facebook slash stillatlargepodcast. The theme tune is by Duke Deck, an online music AI at dukedeck.com. Incidental music was written and performed by Russell J. White. Links to his catalogue are in the show notes, and some was created by me. Still at Large 
is a tiny yellow dinosaur media production.